0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti.
1: So first of all, we've talked about this a lot, the gap between those with college degrees, those without college degrees. It's a big part of the gap between Democrats and Republicans these days in general elections, but it exists within the Republican Party. And take a look at the gap that's developing tonight here in Iowa. So that's
0: Steve Kornacki, MSNBC, and he was on last week on the night of the Iowa caucus. Kornacki pulls up a chart of caucus entry polls.
1: These are Republican caucus-goers with college degrees. Look how they are breaking. Donald Trump barely in this exit poll, leading Nikki Haley, just a two-point gap between them.
0: And then Kornacki pulls up another chart, this one of people without college degrees.
1: Check this out. Donald Trump, 65 percent, two-thirds of the no-college vote so far. And again, we are still getting incoming entrance poll data, so there can be some flux in these numbers, but the gap is obvious, the gap is clear, the gap is stark.
0: Okay, well Cornaki isn't the only one to have noticed that. Today we're going to be speaking with Batya Ungar Sargon. She says that gap is indicative not just of educational differences, but about a fundamental truth that she says Republican Party elites still don't understand about their own voters. Ungar Sargon is opinion editor at Newsweek. She's also the author of multiple books, including the forthcoming Second Class, How the Elites Betrayed America's Working Men and Women. Batya, welcome to On Point. Wow,
2: Meghna, thank wow, you Meghna, so thank much you for so having, much having for me. So, excited, so to excited to be here excited. with you.
0: Mm, I am really sorry. I, I've seen my, uh, the staff here on our end of the radio um, scrambling really hard to get that technical problem fixed, which obviously everyone hears at Echo. But Bhatia, um, I'm grateful that you're going to bear with me while we work that out. Okay. So uh, first and foremost, I should say that uh, your, um, your essay about what Republican Party elites you say don't understand appeared in the free press. Um, but what is it that they don't understand, Batya?
2: Great question. So um, as you opened with, one of the most salient features of America today is not its political divide, even though that is how we tend to hear it spoken about most often. The most salient feature of American life is actually the class divide, Megna, that separates out the college educated from the working class. And increasingly, this divide maps onto the political divide to where Where the Democrats who used to represent the working class are now much more representing the college educated as well as the dependent poor, Mm -hmm. whereas 74 percent of people living in Republican led districts are working class and make less than the median wage. And so the Republican base is now really the working class, a lot of whom used to be Democrats and increasingly the multiracial working class. And so you have this growing growing percentage of the GOP electorate who are Hispanic and even black. You saw President Donald Trump get a historic 20 percent of black male voters in the last election. Now, the thing is, Magna, that this divide, this class divide exists within the GOP as well. And so you have the GOP elites who really are still holding on to the old identity of the GOP as the, the party of the rich, the party of corporations, the party of free trade and open borders, really. I mean, when we think about who was the most pro-immigrant president in recent years, it was actually Reagan before President Biden showed up. Um, This idea that, you know, we should let the markets do their thing and that will sort of raise all boats, the Chamber of Commerce version of the GOP. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, Magna, that Republican voters absolutely can't stand that. They hate the Republican Party because they are working class. And working class people are actually much more united, whether they're liberal or conservative. What they want is an economy that works for the little guy, that works for the hardworking American. And that is really who Trump's voter is. It is the working class man or woman who believes that there used to be a time in American history where the government really focused on prioritizing Americans A lot of these people were Democrats. Now they feel that the system is rigged against them, that these free markets and these open borders just do not work for working class Americans. And they want to get back to an economy that delivers for the little guy who's out there working his butt off and cannot achieve the American dream anymore.
0: Yeah. So there's a ton of... of uh, things within uh, your thesis there, that Bhatia, that I want to dig into. But first of all, uh, let's look at what lessons were drawn from not just Iowa, but as we look ahead to New ha- the New Hampshire primary tomorrow, because, of course, uh, Ron DeSantis just dropped out of the race uh, this weekend, which leaves it a, a Trump-Haley, Nikki Haley race. Trump has a commanding lead in the latest polls uh, in New Hampshire. But you talk about Nikki Haley as... Um, Well, I'll let you say it that she's almost like the ideal version of this classical Republican candidate, uh, almost as if she were made in a lab.
2: Exactly. Right. So she is the person who the Republican donor class loves because she has all of their views. She believes in getting in, you know, getting involved in foreign wars. She believes in free markets. She believes in all of the things that used to characterize the Republican Party before Trump came along. And so they absolutely adore her. But again, there's this deep, deep divide between the Republican donor class and the Republican voter base. Um, And let me just point out one more thing. I, I think that, your audience maybe perhaps tends to think of Donald Trump as somewhat of an extremist. But the truth is that to his supporters, um, they like him because to him, they, to them, Donald Trump is a liberal. They see him as a liberal. And what I mean by that is both economically and socially. On the economic front, they see him as somebody who stands up for the working guy, for the little guy. And we can go into more in detail on how he actually delivered on that in his first term. And they see him socially as a liberal. And what I mean by that is I have spoken to so many Trump voters, including very religious Christians, who said to me, I like that he's pro-gay. I like that he wants black voters to vote for him. I like that he's not an extremist on abortion. I hear this from conservatives. They like what they see as his tolerant positions. And I think where Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis both fell short was neither of them had that economic platform of big government intervening to ensure the economy works for the working class. But also both of them were a little bit too extreme on the social issues. The truth is that these divides that used to characterize American public life, they really don't exist anymore the real divide is between the working class that is quite united in its views on policy both socially and economically and then the elites on either side who are extremely polarized yeah you know they the
0: um this class divide might show that uh, working class voters are united, um, as you say, on their disaffection with uh, what, uh, you know, American capitalism, especially the Reaganite form of it, has wrought upon their lives, right, over the last 40, maybe even longer years. But there are some um, quite significant rifts, though. Even, I wouldn't actually call it a working class coalition, because what you're speaking of primarily, Batia, is white working class voters. Is that right?
2: Actually, no, Um, so it's very interesting because when you poll um, black working class people on something like immigration, um, their views are actually slightly even more extreme than the average white voter. Uh, They feel extremely sold out um, by the policies that have allowed millions and millions of people to come in here, both legally and illegally. And in fact, the data shows um, that up to a 40% wage depression in black employment over the last 40 years due to our immigration policy. So if you talk to black Americans, um, they truly do feel that the Democrats sort of swing to the far left on immigration has come at their expense. And there is increasing frustration over that. We also see that with Hispanics. Um, uh, Hispanics now are completely divided between Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, amazingly on um, on immigration as well, they feel much more similarly to working class whites than they do to the elites of either party. Mm. Yeah, you actually... Um, on that
0: point, you are absolutely correct, because I've been looking at various uh, analyses and polls basically since 2016 until recent times. And one of the most thorough ones that I encountered was from uh, Pew, right? Uh, they they did a big one in 2017, which I'll come back to in a, in a second, but also one in 2021. And you're totally correct in terms of uh, the position that many black American working class black Americans have about being a little more dubious about immigration um, and um, perhaps also feeling especially aggrieved about how uh, the economic system has has treated them. But the divide, I suppose, that I, I was focusing on was that um, the, the re- amongst this socially conservative economically liberal quadrant, which we'll talk about more, White folks in that quadrant are hostile to the position that more must be done to advance black Americans on, on civil rights. They simply do not see racism as a problem. Um, whereas black working class, uh, economically liberal, socially conservative voters who might seem to form an even larger coalition for Trump. This is the divide. They say, no, 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 no. More must be done to advance uh, opportunities for African-Americans. Racism is a problem. So that's the divide that I want to really go at right now with you, that it's not uniform love for Trump or his policies for as long as race is a major issue in America.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I I saw a recent poll from Gallup about affirmative action, which was um, struck down in college admissions by SCOTUS recently, right? Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to see that uh, the majority of black Americans over, I believe the number was between 51% and 54%, are happy to see that there is no longer uh, affirmative action in college admissions, that they oppose um, race-based admissions. Um, And, you know, I knew that the majority of, because we had that polling from before, that the Majority of Black Americans don't support affirmative action, um, but what was most amazing about this Gallup poll, Magna, was that um, the largest chunk of Black Americans who opposed affirmative action in admissions in college was the younger cohort. Usually, it's the opposite. Um, so, I, you know, what I have looked very closely at all of this data because I think it's extremely important, um, and I think it's very important that you bring it up. Mm. Um, when you look at the data showing, um, suppo- purporting to show. Uh, that white working class people, white Trump voters um, have racial animus. If you look at the questions that they are asked, the questions are all about immigration Mm. because the people posing those questions see immigration through a racial lens. But of course, to the working class person who's competing with illegal immigrants for work, uh, immigration is an economic question right.
0: purely and simply. Well, Batia, hang on here for just a minute because um, when we come back, there's a lot more I want to get into with you about the divide in terms of what you say the Republican Party still doesn't recognize uh, about Trump voters. Um and whether or not I, I don't want to necessarily play, play competing polls, but we'll 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 dive into that more. And then we'll also talk with uh, Sarah Longwell as well about what she's heard directly from Trump's voters themselves. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, and today we're speaking with Bhatia Ungar-Sargon. She's the opinion editor at Newsweek magazine and also author of the forthcoming Second Class, How the Elites Betrayed America's Working Men and Women. And she's written about what she thinks uh, even Republican Party elites still don't understand about Trump voters, and her uh, article appeared in the free press. Now, Bhatia, um, I just want to sort of refocus on the core of your thesis here. Um Help me understand what evidence shows that um, the Republican donor class still doesn't quite get what drives Trump voters, because what I also see is that at the end of the day, uh, you know, no matter who gets nominated, the Republican donor class will rally around that person. So, you know, does their does their misunderstanding of uh, working class voters really matter?
2: It doesn't matter because our democracy is so robust and thriving that it turns out that the donor class can put all of its weight behind a candidate and the people can still have their say. Isn't that wonderful, Megna? I mean, isn't that so good? Gr- doesn't that make you feel so good about America? It makes me feel so good about America. <laughs> But t- but tell me more though. I mean,
0: look, I'm I'm yeah. very proud to be an American. I'm pretty gung ho <laughs> on this country. But you know, ultimately, again, if it doesn't matter, if as you're saying, the Republican donor class can back whomever they want um, in the in primary and caucus season, but votes are what count at the end of the day. Then why are you uh, highlighting this point? Is there a message that you're trying to get to those sort of like classical GOP leaders, or, or or what? Help me understand that.
2: You mean why did I write the article? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it's because um, I I point out the class divide um, between the two sides so frequently. I think that the the progressive elites— truly don't they want to be on the side of the little guy, but they truly don't understand how to do that. And um, I highlight that so much that I wanted to be fair and say, listen, this problem exists on the other side, too. Like nobody hates Trump as much as the Republican elites who really want to get back to like free markets. You know, Mm. they really, really don't like him. You know, Trump came out um, a few months ago and said he's going to impose a 10 percent tariff on every single import into the United States states. Now that is the kind of thing that if you are an elite and a consumer of, you know, low wage labor and cheap products from China, right? You're getting 12 Amazon packages every day. You hate that idea, but if you're a working class person who works in manufacturing or who has been displaced by globalization, by NAFTA, and you hear that, that is music to your ears. That is a person saying to you, you matter, you exist. I'm gonna make your life better. I'm gonna make this economy work for you. And I think that's really important. And um, I'm gonna be totally honest. Maybe I wrote the piece because I want The left to recognize this class divide and recognize that so much of what they care about, um, they can achieve, but only through listening to the working class, not by alienating the working class and lecturing them and seeing them and sneering at them and and holding it against them that they vote for Trump because their vote for Trump is a vote for their children's future. And Megna, we all want the same thing, right? Everybody wants their child to have a better life than they did. Everybody wants the American dream and that stability that comes from a middle class class life and unfortunately the elites in both parties have truly made that uh, an impossibility for most working class people of all races
0: and, perhi- and and I would say the 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 behind the scenes sneering is also coming from the elites of both parties, but perhaps it's the Republican Party got, that got its early way earlier wake-up call because of the rapid rise of Donald Trump. So, Batya, hang on here for just a second because I really want to um, bring Sarah Longwell into the conversation. She's the publisher of the bulwark and host of the podcast, The Focus Group and founder of Republic of the Republican Accountability Project. Sarah, welcome back to On Point. So first of all, just just give us a quick reminder of the series of focus groups that you've been doing of uh, Trump voters over the past uh, many years. What were you hoping to understand from the focus groups?
1: Well, when I began the focus groups, I started because I didn't understand what was going on with my party uh, when they elected Trump and Trump frankly, what I found, I do a focus group every week. I talk to a lot of two-time Trump voters now. I talk to a lot of swing voters, but I talk to folks across the political spectrum on the left as well, young voters, old voters, uh, voters of different races and economics and um, education levels. And uh, I think now a lot of, um, I certainly see this education divide that was actually one of my Mm. earliest things that sort of jumped off the page listening to voters that the way college educated voters um thought about trump was different from the way working class voters thought about trump and uh that you could sort of see happening in real time because we do the focus groups every week and have now for years, you could see in real time the political realignment that was taking place as these college-educated, more suburban voters, um, a lot of times in in these suburban suburban areas outside of major metropolitan areas like Bucks County in Pennsylvania or Maricopa County in Arizona, how they were becoming more blue and voting for more Democrats than they traditionally had because uh, they were not interested in a Republican Party that Trump reflected. Uh, But on the flip side, we saw um, working class areas, rural areas, just deepening their redness. Um, Lots of these places that voted for Obama uh, in 2012 and in 2008 and did not like Mitt Romney, uh, those voters are now uh, firmly Trump voters. And uh, some of it is economic. A lot of it is cultural. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I will say, though, a lot of what Batia says resonates with me. I do think it's true. I think the the hatred of the political elites is just such a common theme. And, you know, you asked her the question, you know, where's the evidence that these Republicans don't understand the voters? And I think one of the biggest pieces of evidence is the fact that Mike Pence uh, and Chris Christie um, and Nikki Haley, that they ran for president at all. Uh-huh. Um, Because not just because it's Trump's party, but because they reflect uh, a version of the pre-Trump GOP that just is no longer operational for voters. Voters don't want limited government, free markets and American leadership in the world. GOP voters Mm -hmm. Um, and the college educated voters who sort of wanted a lot of those things and voted for Mitt Romney and voted for George W. Bush. Those voters, many of them. There's been sort of a split where some of them have learned to make their peace with Donald Trump or are just waiting for him to go away. But a lot of them have become Democrats or sort of right-leaning independents that will vote for Democrats when the Republican candidate is too extreme. And we saw real evidence of that in 2022 when a whole bunch of mini-Trumps ran um, in places like Arizona and Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and they lost Uh, just like Trump lost in 2020. And I think part of what's important uh, to remember is that while Trump has touched on something very deep, an anger that's very deep, uh, he's also alienated uh, through a lot of fundamentally un-American behavior uh, the majority of people in the country. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so while this political realignment is going on and he is pulling, uh, both new people into the Republican party, many of them, um, irregular voters or people who hadn't been paying much attention to politics prior to his arrival, he's also alienating huge swaths of voters. Um, and, uh, and, and as a, as a result, the Republican party Uh, has been sort of shrinking uh, as it becomes more extreme. Uh, But Batia's point about Trump being perceived as a, a cultural and economic moderate, that is really true. Um, especially from a lot of these working class voters. They think he's more moderate on abortion. Um, They like the fact that he doesn't want to get rid of entitlements. He shows no interest uh, in the debt. He talks about the wall, but doesn't build it. I mean, this is one of the fundamental problems, though, with Trump, right, is um, what he says versus what he does. um, You know, he gave a massive tax cut to uh, wealthy Voter, or sorry, uh, wealthier Americans, and uh, these voters don't hold it against him because he's saying a lot of the right things that they want to hear.
0: Mm-hmm. Excuse me, <laughs> um, but uh, so so I'm going to come back to the tax cut as a, a point of analysis here. But just just so that everyone knows, um, Batia, in your um, in your essay in in the Free Press, uh, Sarah is is reflecting exactly what you wrote. Right, you wrote the average Republican voter is working class and truly loathes the Bush era version of the Republican Party, which meant tax cuts for the rich, failed wars, and an economic agenda that outsourced jobs to China. So, but Batia, do you think that this means let's just hypothesize here. I'm not sure of its utility, but I'm gonna ask anyway. Um, that it's really it's really Trump and Trumpism that's the the attraction here. And if say he went off to start his own party, that all of his voters would go with him. There's just like no fealty left to what the ideals were of the pre-Trump Republican Party.
2: Oh, it's such a great question. I'm not gonna prognosticate because um every time I do I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and there's only so many times you can be humiliated in that specific way. Um, but um, I will say that that sort of quadrant of the American populace, the quarter of Americans who who are populists, right, who believe in sort of big government creating an economy that works for the working class, um, not welfare, that's not what they're into, but they're into, you know, Americans being able to achieve the American dream through hard work um, and, and achieve dignity in their work, that they see neither party really reflecting that kind of of economic agenda, um, coupled with a sort of moderation on social issues. Uh, there is no party that represents that 25 percent of the American population, whereas there is an entire party that represents the three percent of Americans who are socially liberal and economically conservative, which is what the Republican Party really is right now. So uh, is there room for another party? I don't know. We're so you know committed to this kind of duopoly, but um, th- that duopoly of power is so hated by the working class. Who represent most Americans? So I, I think that there's there is a lot of um, there's there are a lot of options here.
0: <laughs> so I, I just want to explain because all of us keep mentioning the quadrants, and so for yes. folks who aren't familiar <laughs> with it. Um, At least as far as I know, uh, political scientist Lee Drutman was one of the first. He may not have been the first, but he's the first that I encountered in terms of describing these quadrants of American politics. And he released a study that came out um, in June of 2017. And um, basically he created – there's this quadrant, right, which – this map. X axis is – measuring people on their scale of economic conservatism to economic liberalism. And then, of course, the social scale, <clears throat> excuse me, is on the y-axis. And so there are quadrants of voters that are that you can organize that way, the people who are, well, Bhatia, as you said, economically uh, conservative and um, socially conservative, economically liberal, socially liberal, and and the opposites. And it seemed as if a huge number of Donald Trump's voters came from that Socially conservative, economically liberal quadrant. Okay, so with that idea in mind, since definitions are very, very important here, Sarah, can I just hear from you quickly how you would define who is in that quadrant and what socially conservative and economically liberal, um, how you would define that as a political stance?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I would describe it as... um... Uh, I guess, I mean, these are people who vote Republican uh, and they tend to be evangelical Christians uh, and more rural voters who um, are perfectly happy with big government uh, entitlements like Medicare and Medicaid um, are interested in the government potentially doing more for them, especially uh, around healthcare. Uh, and I think that oftentimes can be attracted to the Democratic Party when it is talking about economic issues like bringing new jobs, um, being more. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party has historically been more um, anti-free trade, uh, and th- that was why the you know Democratic Party used to appeal more to working class voters, but where the Democratic Party has started to alienate more of these voters uh, is around cultural issues. And um, on those cultural issues, the Republican Party has seen a real opportunity and has, you know, the Republican Party, when I was sort of coming up in it, it was historically very anti-union and uh, much more favorable to sort of the corporate side of things Mm -hmm. Um, and that has been really changing. I was really surprised when I saw Marco Rubio. I knew that the corner had been turned when I saw Marco Rubio sort of side against Amazon with the workers who were trying to organize. Um, and I think that the Republican Party has seen an opportunity to paint the Democratic Party as sort of captured by Wall Street um, and to say that they are for the they are for working class folks. Now I see much less evidence though that they truly are acting that way, uh, as opposed to their rhetoric having shifted um, when it comes to the economics of it. But on the on the cultural issues, that's why they have leaned into um, a lot of the sort of anti-trans messaging, the woke books. Um, and they are tapping into something very real and fundamental, uh, where people who are more culturally conservative do not like the kind of newfangled uh, academic, like straight from the academy kind of DeI world. Um, and they're they're very hostile to a lot of those changes and see it as culturally alienating. And I think that has driven them into the arms of Donald Trump and this new version of the Republican Party, which um, has basically won them over on cultural stuff and then uh, has tried to be more hospitable to them on economic. Things. Yeah.
0: Well Batia, you wrote a whole book about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bad news, how woke media is undermining the democracy. Um, but Sarah, let me turn turn back to you for a second here because the difference between what um, between saying and doing and how this is playing out um, with those socially conservative, economically liberal voters. You had mentioned um, economy um, issues. And, for example, from that 2017 tax cut, which was at the time a major, uh, like a signature policy from uh, the Republican Party and Donald Trump. I mean, there's been many studies subsequently from them. Um, There was one, for for example, uh, I believe in 2021 from the IRS itself, who said that, Based on tax returns they're seeing, the group of Americans who benefited the most from the Trump tax cuts were in the 98th percentile and above of earning households in this country. So it means they had an adjusted gross income of more than $350,000 and above. So And, and yet that, that, uh, that doesn't seem to be registering amongst um, Trump's working class voters who, I don't know, have they told you that they're feeling they felt an economic benefit from, um, from his
1: presidency? Oh, well, they just think that the economy was so much better under Trump. I mean, the, you do hear this constantly from people who voted for Trump. Um, they sort of forget that last year where the mismanagement around COVID cratered the economy. And they think entirely about um, the first three years where Trump was w- running the economy incredibly hot. Uh, he was adding to the debt. Uh and giving out the you know these this large tax cut and look I'm kind of an old school conservative in that way I think I like limited government and free markets I like um, lower taxes uh, generally I'm for those things but I think for me it is a question of when the reality doesn't match the rhetoric and uh, you know Trump didn't build the wall he talked about the wall a lot didn't talk about tax cuts. A lot. Uh, but he gave a tax cut, and there is no wall. Um, and uh, in terms of immigration, we still, uh, there were always caravans right around elections crossing the border. Um, and so it was more the way that Trump expressed the policies that appealed to people, and they don't seem to be holding him particularly accountable for the results or lack thereof. Mm. Well, Sarah
0: Longwell and Vatya Ungar-Sargon, hang on for just a moment. We'll have a lot more to discuss when we come back. This is On Point. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a quick note on something we're working on for later this week. And that is what some religious analysts are calling a great de-churching in this United States because about 40 million Americans have left their religious institutions in the last 25 years, and a majority of them were once practicing Christians. But the most common reasons people are leaving the church are often maybe not as, uh, uh, as profound and perhaps more banal than you might expect Like going to church is an inconvenience in daily life or family events. So what do you think about that? If you've stopped being a regular churchgoer, we want to hear from you about why. Whatever the reason is, we want to hear from you about that. And let us know um, what impact that's had on you and your family and what would need to change for you to go back to church regularly. And you can send us your messages, preferably on the OnPoint Pop app. If you don't already have it on your phone, just go to wherever you get your apps and look for OnPoint VoxPop, because you sound great when you send us your messages over that system. But if you want, you can also call us at 617-353-0683. That is for later this week. Today, we're talking uh, about the uh, what what makes a Trump voter, and whether or not the re- leaders of the Repub- Republican Party, the Republican elite, so to say, have fully recognized that. And I'm joined today by Batya Ungar-Sargon. She's opinion editor at Newsweek and author of the forthcoming Second Class, How the Elites Betrayed America's Working Men and Women. Sarah Longwell is also with us. She's a publisher at The Bulwark, host of the podcast The Focus Group, and founder of the Republican Accountability Project. I want to hear just quickly from some of the voters that Sarah has been following for a couple of years now. So, for example, here's a a voter from Sarah's focus groups who acknowledges that Trump is flawed, but still believes he's the candidate who best represents them.
1: I just know what Trump offered when he was there last time, and I know we will get the same thing. Uh, If I could have the perfect candidate, I'd surely vote for them. But he isn't coming back yet. So when he comes back, all will be set right? But until then, I'll take Trump and, and what he has to offer.
0: And here's another voter who likes Trump, but doesn't like either of the parties. Trump being the only candidate and ex-president who actually really cared about people
1: with, without caring so much about power. You can't trust Republicans. You can't trust Democrats. Trump was the only one you can trust.
0: So I'd like to bring Heather Cox Richardson into the program now. She is an historian, author of the wildly popular newsletter, Letters from an American, and her newest book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome back to On Point. Oh, it's a, always a pleasure, Megna. OK, so tell me. What do you think about this thesis that the elites of the Republican Party still don't quite have uh, their senses appropriately dialed in to recognize what the average Republican voter wants?
3: Well, you know, as far back as 1986, the leaders of the Republican Party recognized that they could not sell their idea of tax cuts and deregulation as a means of helping working class voters. And as early as 86, they began very aggressively to reach out to evangelical voters and traditional American voters with the idea that they could motivate them based on the idea of fighting back against Abortion, for example, women working outside the home and certainly picking up on the racism that um, that Reagan had incorporated into quite deliberately into his anti-tax message. So the idea that this is somehow new is just simply wrong. It's been there for two generations. But there was always this through line among the leaders of the Republican Party with the idea that they would push that deregulation, tax cuts, free trade and so on Um on the votes of those you know people keep saying the word cultural but of course it was racist and sexist uh messaging to base voters by saying, hey, the reason that we can cut taxes and the reason we don't need programs is because what those programs are doing is they're redistributing the hard, the tax dollars of hardworking white people to undeserving women and people of color. So that thing has always been there. Um, what is different, I think, and I think that the, the, that the two people here are acknowledging it, is that in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2016, when Trump was running for office, he was the only Republican who was articulating just how badly the working class had done under that system since 1981. And every statistic will show you that the money really funneled upward, not downward, through society in those 40 years. And he was the most moderate economically on the stage in 2016. But, of course, once he was in office, he really doubled down on the race and sexism that he had uh, had talked about during his campaign in 2016. And after 2017 and the Unite the Right rally, he really doubled down on the idea that he was going to push the rights of white working class Americans or of white Americans. And I think if you look now at where his movement has come in the six years since then, or what is it now? Uh, since since 2016, there is a reason that his base, his fervent base, is white evangelical Christians who are increasingly articulating the the desire to move away from American democracy and toward Christian nationalism. And just this weekend, he was once again lionizing Viktor Orban, who destroyed democracy in Hungary and replaced it with a, a dictatorship based on anti-immigrant. And anti-LGBTQ legislation, the same sorts of things that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was pushing in Florida, and that um, the Heritage uh, Foundation um, also backed Victor Orban and that increasingly Mm. Trump base voters are talking about needing a dictatorship. They are not saying that about economics and the divorce of economics here from what, you know, I think euphemistically is called cultural issues, but really is talking about white white nationalism is a huge mistake because this is not the traditional Republican Party. It's it's just not. Um, We're in a new phase in which the Republican Party has been replaced by a group of people who are anti-democratic.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the transformation of the parties is so fascinating. I also recall your um, your previous book about the historic the history of the Republican Party and uh, to make men free about we are talking about the same party that held the union together uh, at all costs in the Civil War. But no,
3: no, we're really not. This is this is this party that is an anti-democratic white nationalist party is new in American history. Okay, we could have talked the same way in
0: 2016, but we're in a new moment. It's too naive of me to say, to just use the label of Republican Party as as a, as a an appropriate thread to pull through the centuries. Point taken, Heather, and I appreciate it. But Bhatia, I'd love to hear what you think about what Heather Cox, Cox Richardson has said.
2: Yeah, um, I, to me, Heather's um, portrayal of the GOP and the Trump voter is the kind of wishful thinking that um, leftists and liberals and Democrats allow themselves to get away with because they don't want to deal with the truth of the matter, and the truth of the matter is what I found when I was reporting my book Second Class, um, I flew around the country and interviewed um, working class voters um, of both parties, of all races, of all genders, and all occupations, and what I heard from them was just incredible, incredible consensus on the issues that didn't really fit into either party. Okay? So, for example, the vast majority of working class people that I interviewed, whether they were liberals or conservatives, whether they voted Democrat or Republican, wanted to see something close to a total moratorium on immigration um, because they felt that it was their industries, and they were right about this, um, that are always getting flooded with new migrants and that they are competing with those people and it's driving down their wages. What? They also, whether they vote Republican or Democrat, wanted to see a universal health care that was paid for by the government. Mm. They were extremely suspicious of expanding the welfare state because they all knew people who chose not to work and to live off of the government. But they were also extremely upset about the free trade chamber of commerce policies, globalization, NAFTA, offshoring of manufacturing that they felt had sold them, them out. They were extremely pro-gay, including most of the Christians I spoke to, but they were very worried about the transgender agenda in schools and in sports. So you see how their views did not fit neatly into either party. They were all, almost all, anti-abortion and said to me, I would never get an abortion, but they were also, including the Christians, including the Republicans, they really did not like abortion bans. They didn't want the government making that decision for another woman who was not in their position. And Megan The thing that surprised me the most was I heard again and again from Democrats who were working class that Trump had put money in their pocket and that they recognized the impact he had had on the the, the economy. He got rid of NAFTA. Um, He started a trade war with China, policing the border, historic lows in black unemployment. This was all stuff that they recognized, even the the working class people who chose to vote for Democrats. And at the end of the day, I'll just end with this. This is why the working class is so much more united than the elite elites, because their agenda does not fit into either party. So they would never hold it against another working class person who voted for the other party, because even when they vote for their party, they only get a fraction of what they would like.
0: So Bhatia, let me ask you this, because I share your uh, deep passion and love, I think all of us (laughs) do here for American (laughs) democracy, right? So what I wonder is if you think that these working class voters that you've spoken with uh, and um, kind of you're, you're describing a diversity or a surprising um, range of views, right, within uh, this coalition of, or this group of working class voters, but in their support for Donald Trump— they are also supporting a man who did nothing to protect the very democracy that we're living in on January 6th, who watched television while people paraded the Confederate flag through the capital of the United States. And to, to Heather's point, who is now openly saying, I will be a dictator. I'm working with people who have a plan to fire the entire civil service of the United States and replace them with Trump lackeys. I essentially, translation to my ears, I will take apart American democracy. Do you think they recognize that, that they may be voting or are voting for a man who is now publicly saying, I will undo the foundations of actually what makes this country great?
2: I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, the thing that they would say back to that is, um, well, on the other hand, you have somebody like Joe Biden. Um, and his party has taken the person we think would be the best person to to, to rule this country off of the ballot. Talk about, you know, um, not believing in the the democracy. Now, I understand that many of your listeners may think, listen, what he did warranted that, right? But you have to understand, like, that is an action that, you know, if you look at it objectively, taking a candidate, the most popular candidate in the country, off of a ballot to a, a normal person, to a normie, let's say, that looks pretty undemocratic. And so when you have both sides engaging in behaviors that are not great, you have to choose the side that's going to make this country better for your children. And at the end of the day, I think that's what I would say to this is, you know, a lot of people I spoke to don't think Trump has a good character. They don't like the tweets. They don't like how he talks about women, okay? But at the end of the day, You have to have a certain level of privilege to choose a candidate based on their character when the economy is so punishing for the working class, when the class divide is so deep and the college educated on average make $1 million more throughout their career than a working class person without a college degree. You have to have privilege to be able to say, I'm going to vote for the guy who makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside rather than the guy who I think will make this country better for my children. Mm,
0: But I would also say that Trump doesn't X Excellent job at making his supporters feel loved, right? I mean, he uses the word love. I think almost more than any other candidate I've heard. But Sarah, let me—I'd love to hear your response to, for this to this question about in in, in supporting Trump and uh, you know his views and whatever actions he took that uh, uh, while in office. Do you think in, Trump voters that you've spoken to for a couple of years now um, are aware of the uh, the extent of his truly anti democratic uh, trajectory now?
1: No, I don't think, and I, I do agree with with Batia that the response tends to be, "What about?" Mm. Um, and the Republican Party and its, or not the Republican Party, but sort of the the Steve Bannon right wing infotainment media is very good at supplying these voters with a steady stream of sort of grievance whatabouts. Because the Democratic Party didn't remove Trump from the ballot, a few judges in Colorado did, um, and they did it based on a constitutional interpretation. Because we're a constitutional republic, as lots of Republican voters like to uh, remind. Uh, people who call it a democracy. And, uh, you know, there is uh, an argument to be made that the Constitution says that someone who's engaged in insurrection uh, can't hold office again. And so judges made that assessment, and um, I think we're going to have that fight. I also agree, though, with Batia's... In- how she said that the voters interpret it, that a lot of these Republican voters do interpret that as sort of anti-democratic behavior. Uh, but I, I agree. I sort of want to split the difference between where Heather is and where Batia is because Trump is fundamentally illiberal. He does uh, praise dictators and has the whole time. Um, but there is a, um, a a permission structure being built by folks on the right, including people who've just sort of had to come to terms with Donald Trump, but who are part of the old Republican sort of establishment where, you know, they say, well, Democrats are worse in all regards. Mm. Um, And as a result, that has become sort of uh, the assessment of a lot of these voters where they don't like Trump's character, uh, but they, they believe that Democrats are just fundamentally worse on, on all things. Um, so I think that Batia is correct about how voters see it. I think that Heather, though, is slightly more correct about the reality, which is that, you know, Batia keeps talking about what we can hand down to our kids. I'd like to hand a constitutional republic down to my kids. I'd like to give them an America in which um, we respect the peaceful transition of power, in which we don't sick our mobs on uh, people, on on our elected officials to try and overturn an election. That don't lie to them about an election being stolen when it wasn't, because that's another thing that a lot of these Republican voters believe. In fact, a majority of them believe that. And so, um, and and you know, another thing that you hear from a lot of these voters is how burnt are th- uh, burnt out they are on all the hate. Donald Trump promotes, about how he's tearing the country apart, about how many people Mm. now advocate for civil war. I'm not going to go as far as Heather did about all it's just all white nationalism, because I don't think that's true. Um, I think there's some of that. But I think a lot of it is just regular voters mad about immigration, mad. I do think it's an anti-elite posture, um, but it is leading them to make decisions that are ultimately potentially catastrophic for the way that this country um, runs. Well, Heather,
0: I'm so sorry. We only have about 30 seconds left, but I do want to give you the last word today.
3: The only thing I would point to is that in his three years before the COVID pandemic trashed the economy, G- uh, GDP under Trump was 2.5 percent. In the la- in the third quarter of 2023, 20, under Biden, it was 4.9 percent, and wages actually increased significantly faster for the median American worker uh, than inflation did. And that simply, I think, part of our problem is the press that makes people unaware of Mm -hmm. what's actually happening versus what rhetoric is telling them.
0: Yeah. Well, Heather Cox Richardson, Bhatia Ungar-Sargon, and Sarah Longwell, it's been a terrific conversation. I thank all of you for coming on the program today. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.